You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, my name is Ethan. I'm the family pastor here. Like Elliot said, it's good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, We're in a series called True to Real. We've been in the series for a number of weeks, and what we're doing in this series is we're walking through the book of 1 John. Uh, John, this book was written by John, not surprisingly, 1 John, written by John. And uh, John was actually one of Jesus' disciples. So that means he's someone who knew Jesus face-to-face, actually had a relationship with Jesus, basically went everywhere that Jesus went for a span of three years. And then he wrote this book. It's actually a letter to a group of believers. And it's a short letter. Uh, It's only about five chapters long. So that means that if you went home this afternoon and you opened up the book of 1 John, then you could probably sit down and you could read the whole thing from the beginning to the end in about 10 to 16 minutes. That's at least according to my math, depending on how fast you read. You can go through the whole book in about 10 to 16 minutes. And honestly, there's worse things you could do with your time on a Sunday afternoon, right? Um, But if you did that, one thing that you'd find is that throughout the whole book, there's a word that would just keep coming up again and again and again at the beginning, in the middle, at the end. And that word is love. He talks about love throughout the whole book. And so last week, we talked about this. We talked about real love. We saw how Jesus gave us the commandment to love one another. He didn't just give us the commandment, he also showed us how to do it. He modeled for us how to do that. So if you're here last week, Neil Walker talked about this and gave us four ways that we can love like Jesus loved people. So that was a really helpful message. If you missed that, uh, it'd be great to go back, check that out online. It was, it was a really helpful message. In today's passage, though, John, he continues to talk about love. That's just kind of what he does. He writes about love, but he also writes about love's negative counterpart. And love's negative counterpart is hate. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to drill down on that today. We're going to be looking at hate. And this is an interesting word, an interesting word that John uses quite a bit, uh, hate. When we talk about hate, we really, we mean one of two different things by it. We kind of have two different ways that we use this word. One way that we use hate really just means to passionately dislike. We passionately dislike something. So for example, for me, I passionately dislike pretzels. I think they're terrible. Um, and and, and it's, it's funny because they look good and they smell good. If I'm walking through the mall or an airport or something, and I smell the pretzels. It's like, man, that's going to be so good. And I get excited. And then I taste it. And then, honestly, I just don't get what all the fuss is. I don't get what all you people like about pretzels. Um, people are always trying to talk me into liking pretzels, too. As though through just all I need is some sound logic and some reason. And if, if through sound logic and reason, I can just be persuaded to like pretzels, like something is wrong with me and just needs to be fixed. But it just doesn't work. I was even on a flight this last week and they, uh, they gave me a bag of mixed snacks. Turns out mixed snacks is code for 40 pretzels and three little crackers. So I was hungry, I got my bag of mixed snacks and I thought, man, I hate pretzels, I hate them. Uh, so we're actually very quick to use this word hate when it comes to things that we're, we're joking about or about trivial things like pretzels. Uh, but this isn't the type of hate that John is using. This type of hate, it's really the opposite of like. It's not how John uses it. John uses the word hate in contrast not to like, but in contrast to love. Uh, Here's what he says. We'll jump into it in uh, 1 John 4, verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen, And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, when you love someone, 
You desire good for them. You want what's best for them. You desire that good. When you hate someone, you desire the opposite of that. You desire harm for that person. That's really what hate is. It's desiring harm for someone. And you can't desire good and harm for someone at the same time. You can't love and hate someone simultaneously any more than you could travel north and south simultaneously. That's not possible. So in this sense, love and hate, they really stand here as polar opposites. But according to John, loving God or saying that we love God while we hate others, that's also completely incompatible. Like it says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Well, why is he a liar? Because whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, now, there have been times in my life where I read these words, and it just, it just strikes me to the core. It just it comes in, and it gets me, and it's, it's immediately convicting. I read, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. And I'm just convicted because I know that I'm harboring some sense of bitterness or ill will, maybe toward one specific person, maybe toward a handful of people. And so maybe you're in a spot like that this morning. You read these words, and immediately a face comes to mind, right? Or you, read, you hear these words, and, and a name comes to mind. If that's the case, I think what John has to say, it's going to be really challenging, but I think it's also going to be really helpful for you. Uh, but honestly, for me, those times of, we'll call them deep bitterness or something like that, those times of deep bitterness or, or resentment, those represent a relatively small percentage of my life. It's not the norm. I've definitely been in that spot, but that's not the, the norm by any means. More often, what I'm dealing with isn't this mature or a developed hate but actually just the sprouting seeds, kind of the beginnings of hate. And so whereas mature hate, that's something that's very easy to identify in our hearts. So a name just pops into your head when you hear something like that. That's very easy to identify mature hate. But the seeds of hate, these are far more subtle. They can fly under the radar. They're much more sneaky. And so in our quest to apply God's word to our lives today, what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at the causes of hate or the seeds of hate. Look at the beginnings. And we're going to look at two specific causes of hate. The first one is envy. Envy. Envy is when I want what you have. You have it. I want it. I become jealous for it. And then that jealousy or that envy left unchecked is something that grows and it develops into hate. Now, I am a Chicago White Sox fan. Uh, people hear that and wonder why. My, uh, my dad grew up in Chicago when I was five years old. My dad and my uncle, they took me to a White Sox game, and they lost 12-2 to two to the Brewers, but it didn't bother me. I was, uh, I was on board. Frank Thomas hit a home run, got to see fireworks, been a White Sox fan ever since I was five years old. Uh, but as a kid growing up in the 90s, I would tell you that I hated the Yankees. I hated the Yankees. Why? I didn't hate every team. I just hated the Yankees. The reason is that the Yankees had something that I wanted namely a good baseball team. Uh, <laughs> they had pennants, they had, uh, they had World Series titles. These were all things that I wanted for my Chicago White Sox. And so, hence, my, what, what happened then is my envy translated into, I hate the Yankees. I really cared about that as a 10-year-old as a kid. Uh, but what's true in this trivial realm of sports, it really illustrates what's also true in the consequential realm of our hearts. Uh, if you have something that I want, and I begin to dwell on that, what I'm doing is I'm stepping into and I'm stepping toward 
envy. And this is particularly true if I actually feel that I deserve the thing that you have. Maybe I think that I actually even deserve it more than you do. Well, now I'm really trucking toward envy. And you can envy all kinds of things in other people. You can envy their health. Uh, If you're struggling with health, maybe a chronic issue that you have going on, something you just can't shake, and you see someone who's just effortlessly healthy, well, really easy to step in to envy for that. You can envy health. You can envy physical features. You can envy their personality traits. You can envy their skills that they have. You can envy their position or their authority. Maybe someone at work who has a position and you think that you actually deserve that spot more than they do or has authority and you think you're actually more deserving. You've earned that authority more than that person has. Uh, You can envy their children. Maybe the specific children that they had, you wish you had those children instead of yours, maybe just the fact that, that they have children. Um, and same thing with a spouse. You can envy a specific spouse, or you can just envy the fact that someone has a spouse. You can envy their reputation. You can envy someone's respect that they have. You can envy the house they live in, the vacations that they go on. You can even envy their closeness with God. You can see someone and the closeness that they have in their walk with God and think, why do they have that? I suffer even more than they do. Why do they have that bond with God that I wish I wish that I have? Or you can envy their closeness with someone else. You can see a relationship that two people have, and you can envy that closeness and, uh, and get into envy in that way as well. But whatever the cause, when we envy, what we're doing is we're planting a seed of hate. We're planting a seed of hate. The other cause of hate, the other seed of hate, is anger. So we have envy and anger. Envy is the usual response when I want what you have. Anger is the usual response when you are blocking me from what I want. You're blocking me from what I want. So you're at a red light, and the light turns green. The car in front of you doesn't go. You honk the horn. Light turns yellow. They finally look up and drive off. And where are you? You're there for the next cycle of that light. And you're furious, right? (laughs) You're really mad. Maybe you say some not nice things. Uh, you're left there at the light, and, and, and you're mad. Why are you mad? You're mad because you were blocked from something that you wanted. You wanted that 120 seconds of your life, and this person took it from you. You were blocked from that thing that you wanted. Uh, your kid gets out of bed for seven times in a row one evening, and finally you just you lose your temper. Why? Well, you were blocked from something that you wanted. You wanted a nice, pleasant evening at home. You wanted to do what you wanted to do. You wanted to watch a movie, whatever it is that was going on. You were blocked from that. Um, maybe you spend a week at work on a project, on a presentation that your boss has asked you to make. You get it all ready, and then right before you're going to present, the boss cancels the meeting, and now you resent your boss. Why? Well, because you were blocked from something that you wanted. You wanted credit for the hard work that you've put in. So anger comes when someone stands between us and something that we want. And when we give in to anger, whether it's one big anger or whether it's just lots of little angers kind of accumulating over time, when we give in to that, what we're doing is we're planting a seed of hate. Now, in his letter, John warns his readers about these twin twin causes of hate, anger and envy. And he does it by recalling a story from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Here's what he says in John chapter 3. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And then here comes the warning. He says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Anyone who hates his brother, he goes on to say, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 
Okay, so what's this about? What's going on here? Cain and Abel, these were brothers, they're sons of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And so in the story that John's referring to, both brothers, they bring a sacrifice. They bring a gift before God. And now Abel's sacrifice was brought with a heart that pleased God. It was brought in faith. Cain's sacrifice was brought with a heart that did not please God. And we don't know the details. We don't know what it was about Cain's sacrifice and what he did that doesn't, that did not please God. But what happened was his sacrifice was rejected. And so the result of that was that Cain become, became very angry with Abel. And here's what it says in Genesis. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Well, rather than mastering his sin, Cain went ahead and he yielded to his sin. Instead of focusing on himself and being right before God, he fixated on his jealousy, his envy, over his brother. And so we don't know how much time elapsed while this envy kind of brewed in his heart, but we do know the result. We do know what happened eventually. He became angry enough to kill his brother, and that's what he did. Cain killed his brother Abel. And so what, what started in Cain as envy and anger, it grew into hate in his heart, and then eventually that hate turned into action. And this isn't just a pattern that happened a thousand, or several thousand years ago, many thousands of years ago, to one set of brothers. It's a pattern that plays out in our lives over and over and over again. Anger and envy leads to hate, leads to action. Here's what James says, the book of James. He says, what causes fights? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires, what you want, the desires that battle, battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet or you envy, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. Now, when we see these things show up, when we see anger or envy show up in our hearts, we need to recognize that we are on the doorstep of hate. And we also need to recognize that if we walk through that door, that there will be consequences. There are always consequences of hate in our lives. Uh, so let's look at that next, the consequences of hate. Uh, as we've read several passages already, you might have noticed this. There's kind of this surprising theme <laughs> emerging. Uh, you might have noticed this and wondered what's going on. The theme is murder, of all things. Have you noticed that in the things that we've read so far? It's talking about murder. We, so we've read, uh, we, should, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. We've read, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. So what's this all about? What's going on here? Uh, whenever I read this passage, uh, my first thought is always, okay, what's, what's even going on here? I was, I was tracking with you with anger. I was tracking with you with envy. I was tracking even with hate. But you lost me at murder. Why are we talking about that? Is this just a problem that this church had? Did they have like a homicide problem? the people that John is writing to? Um, was it like the Wild West? If you, someone looked at you wrong, they just strike you dead. What's going on? Uh, no, this is, this is a church just like us. These are believers just like us that John is writing to. So what is he doing? What's going on here? What he's doing is he's giving them the full spectrum of hate. If anger and envy, if these are the seeds of hate, murder is the plant fully grown. Now, um, every day as I drive into work, I pass, I come down on Gothard, and I see the, the fire station over here. They've got that flag. And a 
thing that's been happening that I notice more and more is that flag is often at half-mast as I drive by. It seems like that's happening more and more these days. And the reason it's at half-mast often is that someone somewhere has allowed hate to grow in their heart to the point where they're actually deciding to take the lives of others. And so the flag is lowered to half-mast uh, in, in memory and in honor of the, the victims of some tragedy. And so when this happens, our society is shocked, our society is appalled. We just don't understand how someone could let hate grow in their heart to the point where they actually decide to kill. Now, as believers, we should absolutely be appalled by that. It's, it's appropriate to have moral outrage. It's appropriate to have moral outrage, but we should not be shocked. Appalled, yes. Shocked, no. Why should we not be shocked? The reason is that the hate that drives someone to take the life of another, it's not different in substance from the hate that we have seen in our own hearts. It's more fully grown, to be sure, but it's made of the same stuff. That's what we're talking about here. It's more fully grown, it's made of the same stuff. And so what we see on the news as a fully grown plant, we have seen in our own hearts as sprouts and as saplings. Same stuff, just less mature, less fully grown. Now it's tempting to say here, okay, yes, maybe that's true. Maybe it is the same stuff, but obviously I would never let that grow in my heart to that level. That would never happen. But before we console ourselves with this line of thinking, we actually need to realize something that, that something like harboring hate, harboring anger in our hearts towards someone, while it's a very small deal in our eyes, it's actually a very big deal in God's eyes. Uh, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So Jesus here, he's saying, you think that, that this end of the hate spectrum, murder over here, you think that's a big deal. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a big deal. But guess what? He's saying this end of the spectrum too, hate, anger, this is also a very big deal in God's eyes. And because God takes anger and hate so seriously, when we harbor hate in our hearts, what we're doing is we're actually showing contempt for God. And the consequence of this is that it results in darkness and confusion. In other words, hate cuts us off from open fellowship with God. And here's how it says it in chapter 2, verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, one of the things that, that I'm into is trail running. It's kind of, that's my main hobby, trail running. And because I've got four, uh, four younger kids, and uh, I don't want to just go off for hours and <laughs> leave my wife to take care of them on the weekend, I try to go as early as I can in the morning so I can get back around the time that the family is waking up. And so one of the things that means, especially in the winter, is that I'm often running while it's still dark outside maybe quite a while while it's still dark outside. But it works out. It's not a problem because I've got one of those headlamps. So I'll wear the headlamp, and it gives me it's plenty, more than enough light to see where I'm going, and, and that's fine. Uh, every once in a while, though, I wonder, I get curious, what would it be like if I didn't have this light? And so I'll just kind of turn it off and, uh, and see what happens. You know, maybe just with the moonlight or with the, the glow from the city, there'll be enough. But any time that I turn off the light, everything just kind of grinds to a halt. Uh, even if I'm on a trail that I know really well, that I'm familiar with, all I can do is just kind of slowly pick my way, step at a time, really unsure of each footfall. And so 
when we hate our brother, when we hate our sister, what God does is he pulls back his hand of blessing, he pulls back his hand of fellowship, and it's like the lights go out. Our walk with God just kind of grinds to a halt. We've been making progress. When hatred enters the picture, man, everything just grinds to a halt in our relationship and our walk with God. Our direction and our purpose become confused and aimless. We stop growing. Our relationships suffer, not just the relationship where there's the anger or, or envy, but really all of, our, all of our relationships. Our perspective becomes skewed, our thinking becomes muddled, and our judgment becomes dicey. And this is something I've experienced a handful of times in my life. A one time stands out in particular. This was several years ago when COVID was still a new thing going on. And as a church, we did a focus on prayer walking during that season. So there wasn't a lot else to do. It made sense for us to spend time walking around in our neighborhoods, praying for our neighbors. And, and so that was something that we were focusing on. So one day I set out to go do that. I left on a walk. And as I left, I, I glanced up and I looked at my neighbor's house. And this was a neighbor that I'd had some conflict with, some recent conflict with. And, um, and man, in my heart, I was just, I was struggling toward this neighbor. And so, anyway, I go out on this walk, and what happened is, uh, three quarters of the way through this walk, I realized I have not spent a single moment praying. That's what I set out to do. This is a prayer walk. <laughs> I have not spent a single moment praying. Instead, I'd spent 20 minutes just kind of brooding with anger, and I would even say to the point of, of hate, if we're defining hate as desiring harm for someone, I would say I think I got to the point where I was desiring harm. I definitely wasn't desiring good for him. So uh, just brooding with anger and, and even hate is how I spent my 20 minutes that I'm supposed to be prayer walking. The result was that it was supposed to be a time for, for seeking God, for praying for my neighbors, including this neighbor that I was struggling with, praying for my church, praying for you, praying for my family. Instead, my heart just became consumed with this seed of anger that had sprouted roots of hate in my heart. And it just derailed everything else. And that's what hate does. Now, thankfully, I think God used that day really helped me um, and shine a light in an area where I needed light to be shined. He helped me and helped me work toward freedom from hate. And so in a moment, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about freedom from hate and what that looks like. Uh, but before we do that, before we can really appreciate freedom from hate. First, we're going to, it'll be helpful if we can first appreciate the extent of our bondage to hate. So let's take a look at that. Listen to how the Bible describes the grip that hate has on us. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, which is a type of anger that intends harm, and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So this verse out of Titus, this is describing not the worst of us. This is describing all of us. It sounds like it's just describing the worst of us, but it's describing all of us and our past. And then it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So passing our days in malice, that's how we're spending our time, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. But then God steps in and out of his goodness, out of his kindness, he saves us. And how does he do that? Well, God saved us through the conqueror of hate. He saved us through the conqueror of hate, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the conqueror of hate. We were motivated by selfish desires. We wanted things, and we were trapped in a cycle of hate. Like it says, hated by others, hating one another. And there was actually nothing that we could do to break that cycle. But then Jesus stepped in, and he broke the cycle for us. He defeated hate. And how did he do that? 
Jesus defeated hate through an act of love. But we're not talking about kind of a gooey hugs and warm feelings kind of love. It's actually a gritty, self-sacrificing love that Jesus brought into the picture. He did that. He loved us by laying down his life, by sacrificing his life for us. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. So this is how we even have the category for love in the first place. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So if hate fully grown is the taking of a life, we see here that love fully grown is the giving of a life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave his life as a sacrifice for us when he died on the cross. By dying on the cross, he exchanged, he took our sin on himself and he gave us his righteousness so that we could have hope of a relationship with God. He conquered hate by loving us even as we were hating one another and even as we were hating him. And it's because he first loved us, because he took the initiative, no one was forcing him to do this, but because he first loved us, that we can in turn love others. So 1 John 3.16 continues, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers. So by loving us enough to die, Jesus made it possible for us to live lives that are no longer dominated by hate. And he expects us, it says we ought to lay down our lives. He expects us now to love others, just as he loved us. And he made it possible for us to experience this freedom from hate. So let's wrap up today by looking at freedom from hate. What does that look like? What does it mean? How do we have freedom from hate? Now one day, one day we will have complete freedom from hate. In heaven, hate will no longer be an issue. In the meantime, this is something that we are going to continue to struggle with. The seeds of hate, the sprouts of hate, hate fully grown, we're gonna, we're gonna struggle with this. And so how are we to respond as we continue to struggle with hate, as that continues to be something that shows itself. Uh, what are we to think when we begin to see hate in our hearts, and then what are we to do about it? Well, John gives us a couple answers. The first thing is to submit to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Now, one of the reasons John's writing in the first place is to give his readers a confidence that Jesus has saved them from their sins. He wants them to be confident in that, but he doesn't want them to have a blind confidence, and he doesn't want them to have a false confidence. He actually wants them to have an evidence-based confidence that Jesus has saved them from their sins. And so what he does is he gives these readers several things that they can point to as evidence that Jesus is working in in their lives, that he has saved them. One of those evidences, as we see throughout the book, is love. So when you love people, particularly when you love those in the church, the people that you're sitting next to right now, when you love those people, that's evidence of Christ at work in your life, evidence that he is changing you. But the opposite is also true. When we hate others, particularly when we hate others in the church, that's also evidence. And we should view that as a minimum, as, at a minimum as a red flag in our lives. If hate is a dominant feature in our lives, it's valid to ask, have I actually submitted to Jesus? Is he actually the boss of my life? And if it turns out the answer to that question is no, then it means hate still has free reign in your heart. It hasn't been checked. It hasn't been conquered by the conqueror of hate, Jesus Christ. But the good news is that he's ready to forgive you. He's ready to forgive you and start a process of changing you from the inside out. He's ready to conquer sin and conquer hate in your life. And the process starts when we admit our sin, when we ask him to forgive us of our sin, and we submit. We submit our life to follow him as boss of our life. Now, if you have already submitted to Jesus, and he is the boss of your life, this doesn't mean that every time you spot a seed of hate in your heart that you need to freak out 
and you need to wonder, am I really saved? Did Jesus really save me? But it does mean that if he is the boss of your life, then you should expect to see God help you make progress in loving others over time. And that's what I think was going on in this, this walk that I told you about from a few years ago. I think that God was putting a finger on an area of my life that was very much out of line with who he wants me to be. And he was helping me submit that area of my life to him. He was helping me make progress in loving others. And that's something we should expect to see if Jesus is really the boss of our life. So we should submit to Jesus and his will for us. And then secondly, focus on loving others. Focus on loving others. Uh, Last week, like I said, we talked about real love and Neil Walker came. He gave us this list of how to love people like Jesus loved people. And so in wrapping up today, we aren't going to reinvent the wheel, but we are going to recap the wheel. So we're going to look at those points from last week, because this is really crucial to overcoming hate in our lives. How we go about loving others is crucial to overcoming hate, envy, anger. So let's look at those. If you want to make progress in loving others, then love them as Jesus loved them by doing these things from last week. First, accept them. Um, And this doesn't mean that we approve of everyone's actions. Acceptance and approval are not the same thing, but it does mean that while we hold on to truth with one hand, we reach out and extend a hand of grace with the other hand. And this is what we want for ourselves. We want people not who are going to approve of every single thing that we do, but we want people who are going to extend us grace, people who are going to accept us. So accept them, also serve them. Uh, When we hate someone, like we've said, we're wishing harm for them. When we serve them, we're actively working for their good. So think creatively. Think creatively. How can I serve the people that I'm struggling to love? And how can I actually work for their good instead of wish their harm? And then forgive them. Uh, When we forgive, we're letting go of our perceived right to hate someone. That's at the core of what forgiveness means. And this means that we stop replaying the wrong that they've done to us in our minds. We forgive them. Befriend them. This doesn't mean that we make best friends with everybody, but it does mean that we treat people with with respect. And then to the extent possible, that we invite them into our lives and we invite them into our schedules. And then last, this isn't something that we talked about last week, but I'm, I'm tacking it on here because this is really crucial for getting traction in loving other people, especially the people that we struggle the most to love, and that is pray for them. Pray for them. Um, In my experience, when I'm really struggling with hate for somebody, it's really difficult to sit down and pray for them. It's tough to even get started. It's tough to ask God to do good on their behalf. But that's been so helpful in breaking through hate in my own heart. When I sit down, instead of wishing ill for them, I sit down and I ask God to actually bless them, to do good for them, to work, work good on their, on their behalf. And so if you want to make progress in overcoming hate, when you see those seeds pop up in your life, pray for the person that you're struggling with and watch as God changes your heart. So God has given us freedom from hate. When hate, when hate does rear its ugly head in our lives, whether it's in the the seed stage, whether it's in the sprout stage, or whether it's progressed beyond that, we can really experience freedom from that. We can do that by submitting to Jesus, and we can do it by focusing on loving others in these tangible ways. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, as we saw in your word today, that you you took the initiative, and you came and you loved us. We didn't love you, and you took a step toward us. You sacrificed for us. And you're changing us every day, God. We pray that 
as you work in our lives, that that would reflect in how we treat other people. That um, over time, the people who know us would see that we are growing in love, that we're going to be more like you, and that um, when that love is challenged by seeds of hate in our heart, God, I pray that you would help us to stamp that out quickly, God. I pray that we'd be marked as people who, who love others and, um, and that as those who aren't a part of our church, God, as they see us interact with, any, with, with each other, they would know that we're followers of you just based on the way that, that we treat each other, Father. I pray that this would be a mark of how we live. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.